This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024, the first primary day and maybe the last of 2024. I am John Bodhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Christine, you sound... Almost I know. Let's not jinx it. I, there's a tiny bit of rasp left in there, but no, I'm good. I'm, I'm back to okay. s- as normal as I'm capable of being. Okay. And uh, senior editor Seth Mandel. Hi, Seth. Hi, John. Matt Connetti is out today. Last tracking poll of the New Hampshire primary has Donald Trump hitting the grand number of 60 with Nikki Haley at 38 for Nikki Haley to prevail. There would have to be a historic, unprecedented polling error across five polls, the likes of which we have never seen. Um, Steve, Our friend Steve Kornacki, who was on last week, pointed out last night on Twitter that if Nikki Haley were to win independent voters in New Hampshire by 45 points, which would be the largest margin error outdistancing John McCain's 42 points in 2000. Uh, yeah, in 2000. Um, and were to score normally based on all the other things. So if she won independence by 45, she would win the primary by 0.1%. So Donald Trump has consolidated the Republican vote pretty, pretty firmly. Uh, he will, if he hits 60%, as this tracking poll suggests, that will, of course, be better than Iowa, where he got 51%, and the race is over. I find it actually very hard to believe, should this number be anything close to that, that that Haley will not suspend her race. By the way, if you suspend a race, you're still technically a candidate, so if the exogenous event that somehow knocks Donald Trump out of the race should happen both Haley and DeSantis and whoever else is in the race can kind of push the button, come back to life and keep running. So the uh, continuing to run is not necessary for her. Uh, So that's it. The Republican party is now is, is firmly completely and fully Donald Trump's party. Uh, Pache, Chris Starwalt, who was on yesterday, who said, the party is really divided. It really isn't divided. What it is, is 75% Trump's party and 25% pretty hostile to Trump. And those numbers are very damaging and dangerous to him and the 
in the November election, if that 25% remains hostile, he's going to need every single Republican who can vote to vote for him because Democrats have that natural uh, numerical advantage among among people who, among party members. So, um, but here we are. Uh, so anybody want to take 10 to 1 odds that Haley prevails because I I have a I have a ten dollar bill here. I will if you want to bet you could you only have to give me ten and I'll give you a hundred. If Haley prevails, those are good odds. I I I might even make it twenty to one. What if you gave me ten dollars? I gave you two hundred dollars. Now, if I said this to you, by the way, a week ago Monday, a week ago Monday, it seemed very plausible that Haley might win in New Hampshire. I, I would, would take, say that taken it a week ago. Yeah, I mean the problem is that I've been watching the face of Sununu for a week and and seeing him kind of wide-eyed when she reacts to certain questions and muttering to himself that's not how I would have answered it. And and that that sort of look of panic and fear on his face I think has spread throughout the podcast here and and settled. Um I I want to actually ask a question about what you said at the top uh, about what the Republican Party is. Because J.D. Vance was going around. He's one of the many debutantes who's clearly being brought out in his white ball gown to, to try out for the role of vice president uh, on the Trump ticket. And he went on and on, kind of in a, in a very self-congratulatory way, that the old establishment GOP is dead. And, you know, if it wasn't, then Nikki Haley would be winning, but she's not winning. So we are clearly the future. We have to, we have to embrace this new party and, and go forward. And I don't think that it's as much a done deal as he thinks. It might be in this election, but there are there are a lot of people who are not happy with this new GOP party. And as you've said, it's still a fairly small percentage of the entire voting population in the U.S. that shares all of their views. So I'm just curious if anyone else thinks that maybe Vance and, and Trump are getting ahead of themselves here. OK, I need to interrupt. One, uh, I made an incredibly stupid mistake yesterday that I need to clarify I did on Twitter, which is when I said DeSantis was... Uh, you know, was was aiming for the veep stakes by his quick endorsement. And of course, DeSantis and Trump cannot run on the same ticket because they are from the same state and the Constitution forbids the president and the vice president from being residents of the same state. So um, that was really dumb of me. And I apologize. Uh, the second point I want to make is that J.D. Vance is a very interesting character because he was made, he was built on the, on uh, I would say, on the foundation of the, not the Republican establishment, but of... The liberal uh, establishment. No, I mean... Well, sort of. So he, here's J.D. Vance's journey. He went into the military, he came out of the military, he ended up at Yale Law School under the tutelage of... Harvard, a, I think. Harvard no, Law School. Yale. No, oh, it was Yale? Yeah. Okay under the tutelage of Jed Rubenfeld and Amy Chua. Amy Chua, of course, the Tiger Mom, and now the, they're both known as sort of like the two remaining semi-conservatives on the Yale Law School faculty. She encourages him to write for David Frum's website, to write into David Frum's website, Frum Forum, where he starts contributing. Before David went to the Atlantic and before David's journey from being a uh, you know, a, a neocon Republican of some vintage to a sort of anti-Trump independent, let's say, um, writes this book, which could have been written by anybody at the American Enterprise Institute, 
uh, as a, a portrait of what is wrong with the white working class, uh, becomes a huge bestseller, ends up running for Senate in 2018, and tactically moves into the Trump camp in Ohio in order to secure the primary and then the general. And so why do I bring us up like this? Because what this reminds me of more than anything is the 60s. Democrats in the 60s who, as the party moved, started moving to the left because of Vietnam and civil rights, started to grow their hair out a little bit. You know, they started to wear beads. You know, they said groovy. They did, they did all that. J.D. Vance is an inauthentic representative of Trumpism because the, th the very thing that got him to the Senate was a set of ideas and the expressions of those ideas that are inimical in some fashion to Trumpism and were the full flowering of ideas about American dysfunction that were developed on the neocon right, not on the far, not on the anti-neocon right. Including, by the way, ideas about about military action that he did not espouse in his own book, where he is now, you know, a full-on isolationist. I love that analogy. It's like uh, the new right going psychedelic. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, you know, and, and, and I, they would be I, calmer if they were on psychedelics. Actually, you know, they, they're, yeah, they're I, announcing. I, yeah, go ahead. They're announcing say, Oscar I, nominations right now, and that movie about Leonard Bernstein is up for going to be up for many Oscars. And there's a great moment in the Tom Wolf article that is nowhere in the movie Maestro uh, and the event where Bernstein hosted the Black Panthers at his Park Avenue duplex, uh, the immortal radical chic uh, piece, where, you know, Bernstein keeps saying things like, far out, man. I dig. And I dig, and that sort of thing. And there's like Leonard <laughs> Bernstein, you know, the representative of Hive Culture in the United States. Anyway, go ahead, Abe. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, no. It just, it's... Part of why I love the analogy is because it it um, jibes with something I've been saying for a while now, which is that I fully expect there to be a right wing 1960s um, and w with all the attendant horrors, uh, you know, of the 1960s and of the of the liberal of the left leftist 1960s. And um, I think we are seeing something like that. And, and you know. Also, I think what's happened among the, the new right types, MAGA types, populists, whatever you want to say, is that for them, the establishment GOP, whatever they conceive of that as, has, first of all, that's, it's grown in their, in their thinking. It's a larger entity. It encompasses more than it, than it used to. And um, it has become more thoroughly lumped in with Democrats and liberals. Uh, there's there's barely a, a distinction. Um, you notice it in the way they talk about Nikki Haley. You know, as a corporatist, uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. it's 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 like it's like they're talking about Hillary Clinton. There's there's almost no difference. Well, J, you know, JD Vance was like Rahan and uh, and Ross Douthat version of you know this sort of. Uh, what did they call it? The um, the uh, uh, one uh, one of the one of the wholesale, not Costco, not Costco, right, right. But Sam's um, Club, but the Sam's, Sam's Club, Sam's Club. 
Sam's Club Republican, right? And, that was a book that Rayhan Salam, now the now now the director of the Manhattan Institute, and Ross Douth, that obviously the columnist for the New York Times, wrote together when they were I don't know twenty four or something like that was this effort to um, to offer a portrait of where the Republican Party was going wrong with a certain class of the electorate, and their their analysis proved reasonably prescient. Um, their 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 ideas uh, were not taken up by the Republican Party, right? And and they and that was there. Those were like the two sides of this type of thinking. There was the the side of of the you know we didn't call it populist at the time, but it was you know very much associated with Tim Pawlenty and people like that. Um, that there was something um, you know that the government had a role to play in all of this, and then. And the other side of that is the new right, you know, sloganeering the cor- corporatism and neocon this and neocon that and whatever and all that stuff. And, you know, it's true what Abe says with that. They sound exactly like the left in that. But there was this whole other path to go down. And when J.D. Vance emerged first, it kind of seemed like that was maybe the opening that, you know, everybody had been a bit early. You know, Tim Pawlenty may have been a man before his time or something like that. But J- Tim, Pawlenty J.D. Was the governor, Tim Pawlenty was the governor of Minnesota, a Republican who won in a in a, in a Democratic state and um, had an interesting uh, economic sort of outreach of philosophy was himself a working class kid who had become governor. Interestingly, in a model that that DeSantis would follow in some sense in 2018. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that that seemed J.D. Vance seemed at first like he was the harbinger of that strain of republicanism or conservatism, whatever you wanted to call it, come actually finally sort of coming through. And you mixed that with Trump and Trumpism, which was aimed supposedly at the same types of issues and problems uh, that were going to be solved by Sam's Club conservatism and, you know, attention to that. And the mixture became, uh, you know, it's like Trump swallows everything. And so but there was, was like this kind of like this emerging um, kind of sharp minded critique of, you know, the sort of classic uh, neoconservative to, you know, two cheers for capitalism sort of thing that was coming through. Uh, and, Anything that mixes with Trumpism sort of gets the Trump attitude and the Trump attitude just becomes sloganeering, destroy everything, you know, a sort of, you know, Leninist, you know, uh, whatever they did. wrecking ball. <clears throat> they did. But th- but see, this is important because they did have Vance and some of those other guys early on. I agree. Had a kind of a, a very nuanced critique of the bootstraps philosophy. They were like, it, it really was a two cheers for capitalism. It was like, you know what? You can rise. Look at me. Look at this guy. Look at this person. But there are some structural issues that are harming a lot of other people that are making pulling oneself up uh, much, much more difficult. But they switched on a dime to the grievance because the grievance actually gets you a lot more of an emotional response from voters. I think it gets you more attention. So the bootstrap stuff kind of disappeared and instead became a strategic grievance campaign that looked at more abstract entities rather than at like kind of the detailed stuff that at the beginning, I think they were offering a really interesting critique. So I the think question is, a, can, when, can I just layer on this the the metaphors here? I think I think there's another sort of historical moment at the same historical moment actually, but looking at another group, it's also it's kind of like when 
civil rights leaders embraced the uh, black nationalist paradigm, right? And uh, uh, grew out Afros and adopted, you know, African names and and sort of spoke in in militant and and Marxist terms um, as opposed to uh, fulfilling the 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 promise of the of the american founding right well look so the idea was jd vance was uh my people um who were by the way upper middle class i mean as kevin williamson wrote in a brilliant review of hillbilly elegy in commentary his grandmother who raised him made more than a hundred thousand dollars a year in the 80s so um she culturally may have been up from hillbilly but um the dysfunction in her in his life uh came due to drug abuse on his mother's part and um and a, a some kind of problematic set of social messages that encouraged her irresponsibility his mother's irresponsibility and that this was what was he learned how to escape and he learned how to escape through hard work uh through uh, f- that he learned from his grandmother and grandfather that hard work was important uh going into the learning how to be part of something larger than yourself by going uh, into the military and then bettering yourself by seeking educational attainment which he did by ending up as a graduate of the Yale law school when he became a politician he just became part of the you're being screwed by america um, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, the complete reverse reversal or distortion of his own message. And that was Trump's great seduction in 2018. And what explains, I think his complete consolidation of the party now, which is that politicians need simple messages to convey to people who don't pay that much attention. And the message of the Republican party that was simple was, America's a great country. We love America. They don't love America that much. All they want to do is change it. We want to make sure that uh, we drop all the barriers that there are in the way of people achieving their best and giving everybody a shot at the starting line. Uh, And that was one message. And for complicated reasons, that no longer appeared to be a winning message or the people who were peddling it, like Tim Scott this year, Rubio in 2016 could not get purchase. And what did Trump say? Trump said, it's all rigged. You're being screwed. Trust me, I know. I'm at the top of this pyramid. And all we're doing is trying to keep you down. And I'm, you know, I'm like the spy. I I came up through the ranks. I know how it works. And I am going to make them pay for what they're doing to you. And um Apparently, Republicans believe that now more than they believe the other simple narrative about America. And we're just going to have to live with that uh, and see what happens. Because, of course, Biden had Democrats have their own version of it, which is that the rich are screwing you. Not that the system is screwing you, but the rich specifically are screwing you. And that we need to give you lots of stuff, college student loan forgiveness and various other things in order to, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry if you heard that, um, in order to level the playing field or make make life fair. So you have two different, America is fundamentally unfair. 
government will fix it or we will destroy government to fix it. This is now American politics. But at the same time, the party's makeups on either side were also shifting while all this was going on, right? The Democratic Party becoming more educated, uh, more elite, more wealthy than it had been in previous eras, and the Republican Party being dominated by non-college educated uh, Americans. And that shift, I mean, the message shift, interestingly, um, I don't know if it was a chicken or egg issue, but that actually plays into some of the, certainly some of the class dynamics uh, and, and it's certainly a lot of the hypocrisy of like every time Bernie Sanders wants to lecture me about rich people, I just start cackling because this guy's a multimillionaire. And and so there there are these kind of weird um, moments. And But Vance in particular strikes me as such a lost opportunity to thread a needle that 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 would have been very helpful, not just to the GOP's uh, future and, and political fortunes, but for the countries, because this country is changing demographically, it's changing ideologically, and we do need leaders who understand what's happening at the ground level, who can translate that into policy goals and, quite frankly, into some sort of uh, rhetorical vision for people that they can latch onto that isn't about grievance, that isn't about you know class warfare, that isn't about all it these was. things that actually we've largely tried to avoid as a nation. He he was, but what we have to take a lesson from is that that's not where he went. He went a different way. Why? Because he was mark because it's a marketing challenge to get yourself elected. The ER candidate for what you were talking about was Rubio, and Rubio couldn't get there. Uh, I'm the son of a a maid, and a I can't remember what his dad did. Um, what did his dad do? Uh, but, you know, I, I came, my parents came here from Cuba. I, I went to a modest college. I support a change revolution in American education that privileges or at least equalizes vocational training and community college over, you know, elite universities and institutions. He was a great speaker. He believed in American, the projection of American power. Da, da, da. And then uh, up on his left and right flanks comes trump who says everything everyone has done in the last 20 years has been stupid they're all morons and they're all corrupt and lock them up and the, their wars are stupid and their economic policies are hurtful and you're being screwed but remember he led the he he got there with his message but trump led with i'm a success and if you want to be a success like me, you've got to you've got to buy into this what I'm what I'm selling because I think there is a lot of there's a there's a part of his message that's very appealing to people, which is that he kind of weirdly, I mean bizarrely, truly, if you look at his actual history, comes off as sort of self-made, right? That's how he pitched himself certainly the first time around. And it was if you want to be successful like me, you can be, but you got to come on board with me because I know how they're trying to screw you. If you try to work hard and do all the things they tell you, you're going to get screwed. But if you look at if if, if you do it my way, you'll have, you know, you'll be like Trump. I, there there is an appeal there so now, in terms of so his braggadocio. So now the er message is uh the Democratic Party's regime is completely corrupt in every possible way. It, you know, tries to buy off, you know, like rich college people. It, uh, it's empowering the Biden crime family. It's using the Justice Department and the levers of justice to try to destroy uh, its political rivals. It sides with... Uh, all of this crime and destruction on campus and uh and and in the cities and um 
if they get another four years, the country is going to be destroyed and they hate you and they hate me and I'm your retribution. And Biden's message is going to be, oh, and, and Biden, of course, is, is a figurehead because he's senile. And Biden's message is going to be, he's crazy. He's crazy and he's a criminal and he's probably going to get indicted and boy, is he crazy. Oh boy, is he nuts. And then he also has to wait and see that the economy might be getting better so he can say he's crazy and look you know we look we came through covid and everything else and now things are really cooking so don't change horses in midstream i have no idea where this goes i have no idea where it goes nobody has any, this could be the most interesting political year of our lifetimes and every single presidential year has itself seemed like the most interesting political year of our lifetimes with the possible exception of 20, 2012 um, I mean, each one has the has had these crazy features, right? Since '96, when Clinton just won very handily over Dole, right? The 2000 tied election, 2004 the election about Iraq, 2008 the election that took place in the immediate wake of the financial meltdown and the rise of this kind of cultural iconic figure, 47 years old uh you know the voice of a new generation and then you go to 2016 you have the craziest election we've ever seen and then 2020 the craziest election we've ever seen and aftermath of an election but here you have a 78 year old man and an 80 year old man and one is senile and one is nuts and and each of their crit critiques of the other has validity and the election is probably over tonight i mean the you know the the race is probably fixed tonight and there's almost 10 months to go. But then that's where I mean, the third party question comes in, okay, right? Well, because if, if if that if it is set after tonight, then there is another path to open up if if there's enough will and money to throw at that third party. Right. right. Well, it opens up or if the if the if the general election begins early, right? A lot of people were saying this is this is going to be the longest general election in a very long time. And it's not that surprising when you think about it in macro terms, because it is, as we've been saying all along, two incumbent presidents running against each other. Yeah. So it's not that surprising that it ends up being the shortest primary yeah. season of any of the elections, because it's really two incumbents. But no. if that happen, if that does happen, then yes, there's, there's so much time left that somebody's they're going to get the idea that um a third party you know if they the can way, get on the ballots that why stop it, time for it why stop at three 1948 there were four candidates for president thurmond henry wallace truman and dewey um all four of them viable candidates in some weird sense like thurmond representing the Dixiecrats. Wallace had been vice president of the United States, representing far-left progressives, uh, you know, Dewey, governor of New York, you know, attorney general, whatever, and then and then Truman, the incumbent president. So all we're all focused on no labels may do this, Bobby Kennedy Jr. may do that, blah, blah, blah. The Greens are still in, all that. There could be five candidates for president takes a substantial number of votes and what that does ungameable we don't right. know who well they, they i mean the, the, no we there's they were guaranteed to unless the the problem with bobby kennedy is that he's he has to get on ballot but um but if as long as he does enough and we're guaranteed to have four names that 
people recognize when they go into the voting booth. Four names uh, that no, that the voter doesn't say about any of them. Who is this guy? Because Kennedy is is known. And, you know, if it ends up, uh, I don't know, being Joe Manchin or or something like that. I mean, the, the point is that no no labels or whoever's putting this together is going to look and say, if we just get somebody whose name people recognize and arguably, you know, Gary Johnson was a name that by the time he ran, you know, he was a sitting senator before he Jill ran for president. Stein, nobody knows who Jill Stein is. Jill Stein got five percent of the vote in 2016. There's she's also a crazy, she's a crazy person. And you, you know what else? uh feeds this possibility and what else makes this such a remarkable election is that the potential impact of an exogenous event changing the election is alive on both sides right you know we're just talking about it on the trump side and how that would affect haley and desantis but given the ages and conditions yeah uh, uh of of the two incumbents um it's 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 there, there's a total mirrored possibility there I mean, the other right. I mean, because does Dean that, Phillips yeah. go from does you know would Dean Phillips take the no label thing and put him together with somebody that they're looking at? Because then they they could run a sitting congressman against you know the Phillips, president of his own. If party. Dean Phillips, who is a congressman from Missouri, who was running in the you know was running against Biden, the only declared candidate against Biden except for Marion Williamson in New Hampshire and a couple of other places. If he were somehow to get 25% of the vote tonight, I can't imagine that he would. But if he were, would he be the no labels candidate? I think uh, without question. So let me let me pause here for a minute and talk to you about our friends at the Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org. Uh, now more than ever, we are uh, find ourselves at this moment in a very uh, interesting point in the Israel's war. Uh, against Hamas, where there's now talk of ceasefire, a terrible, uh, a terrible moment for the Israelis yesterday, uh, where uh, 24 soldiers were killed in an RPG attack that was possibly followed by the explosion of a booby-trapped building, a very significant loss of life at a single uh, space, and uh, Israel itself is starting to have protests and no confidence votes and all of that. And the problem is, if you want to follow this, you're going to follow it in the corporate media. If you if you're not wise, and uh, and uh, let's face it, it's, they're biased against Israel and against Jews. Uh, and even many Jewish news outlets, uh, hostile as they are, let's say to Bibi Netanyahu in every possible way, uh, just can't be trusted with the way that they report things. Then there has never been a greater need for a news source on Jewish matters that is not tainted by false pro-Hamas narratives or woke ideology or an artificial even-handedness. And that source is JNS.org, the Jewish news syndicate helmed by longtime commentary contributor Jonathan Tobin. It should be your go-to daily website for reliable information and incisive opinion about Israel and the fight against anti-Semitism here in America. JNS.org is the one Jewish and Israeli publication you can trust for coverage of the war and the issues facing Jews around the world. At JNS, you get exclusive columns from the strongest defenders of Israel, including Tobin, Carolyn Glick, Alex Trayman, and Melanie Phillips, along with a broad array of opinion and a lineup of must-hear podcasts and videos. Subscribe to JNS's twice-a-day newsletter, watch its videos on YouTube, or log on to JNS.org every day to get the best in Jewish news and opinion. I read it every day, and so do Abe, Christine, Seth, and the rest of us at Commentary. You should, too. JNS.org. Um... So 
uh, I just think we're, I think interesting is the watchword here and unprecedented is the watchword. And when we're in an unprecedented situation, 10 months before an election, with these two incumbents running against each other, each wildly unpopular with incredibly low approval ratings, um, you know, you just, you don't know what's going to happen the next day and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. How about Trump, you know, in the in the big blush of his consolidating the party, getting all these endorsements, getting the endorsement of Tim Scott, who ran against him in South Carolina, Tim Scott that announcing his engagement. Trump makes a closeted gay joke about Tim Scott last night at a rally. He's like, oh, Tim Scott got, got engaged. What's the story there? Guy just endorsed him. I mean, so his innate jerkiness and despicable character cannot be suppressed. He cannot suppress it himself. And the people who like it, like it. And there are people who are going to be like, oh, come on, don't do that. Like, whatever. I don't, who knows what he'll say? Who knows what he'll say between now and then? And then who knows? whether Joe Biden's voice will be audible by November. Trump I mean, also says, I agree here. to everything you say to him, right? If you're a supporter. And so, you know, last night there's a video of him going, you know, at, at an event and somebody apparently shouts out uh, a, uh, a QAnon line, you know, those conspiracy theorists and, you they're know, hostages, Trump not the one where he said they're hostages. The J six people are hostages. And he said, I'm getting them out. No, the one. No, although one. I did see that one, but there, there was a there was another one that was just that was just like it. There was some just some slogan, and oh look, he's nodding and he's he's nodding knowingly and smiling. It's like, well, I don't know if he even heard what they said, but it doesn't matter because he's you know it's not just what Trump says. In other words, it's that you know people are going to come up and go, "There's a hey, uh, Mr. Trump, there's a storm coming, ain't there?" You know, and Trump's going to go, yeah, there's a storm coming. And then all the QAnon people are going to go, oh, there it is. You know, he he has no um, it's not just the no filter. It's the he has no mechanism for filtering what comes in uh, to him, not just out from him. And it's like if you're a supporter, it's all good. And so on top of the things he's going to say about, right. I don't know, Tim Scott okay. and whoever he else, has... it's going to be a long season. But of he's a he's like... a perfect foil for the conspiracy theorists because he he he's very good at mimicking knowingness. So somebody says something, he'll nod and be like, "Yeah, exactly," and having no idea. And they don't care if he knows or not. Just they just need to see themselves reflected in a moment. They need to see that politician nod at them right. rather than call security. I mean, there is a sort of element of that that he's quite good at. Well, let's talk about like m much larger matters, uh, global matters, and how this election is going to affect them. Because we obviously have two critical situations go through three. We talk about China and Taiwan, but China and Taiwan hasn't hit a boiling point yet. But we have Ukraine, and we have we have the Israel Hamas war, which appears to be spreading you know, with uh, direct American and British action against the Houthis in Yemen who are firing on, who are coming in in some fashion in support of Hamas. We don't quite understand what the concept is here, but, um, and we have Ukraine. So I want to, I want to point out that Trump, unlike Tucker Carlson, unlike J.D. Vance, unlike Ron DeSantis, unlike a lot of people, has not come out 
against aid to Ukraine. He has not. He says he likes Zelensky. He said that was a perfect phone call. He got he, he has not said that he he thinks that this is American overreach. In fact, he might find it prudent to say that Biden has been a wuss and that Biden hasn't done what was necessary to score this win by giving the, you know, that Biden actually is weak and he would be strong, right? He does say, if I were there, this war wouldn't have happened. And if I become president, I'll solve it in 24 hours. But he could conceivably come out to Biden's right, which would be kind of startling and politically kind of interesting because, you know, uh, the idea that the Republican Party opposes Ukraine the candidate who came out in opposition to Ukraine was Ron DeSantis, and Ron DeSantis just blew up on the on the on the you know launch pad. Didn't help him to be that aggressive in opposing Ukraine aid. I'm not saying that Ukraine aid is popular among Republicans, but it could be that it's kind of like in a weird middle ground. And it didn't and, sink Haley. And it wasn't what it never became a yeah. problem for her. And she was and she was full throated in support right. of right. Ukraine and making right. those arguments. I, I, I think the interesting happen. I would not. I think that it is fanciful to imagine that Trump will become like a neocon on Ukraine. I'm just saying it's a it's a weird moment where we don't know where that's going to go, because what he's got to do is oppose Biden. And if the line is that Ukraine is losing to Russia because it just didn't get the right kind of support from America that it needed. I could see Trump jumping on that and saying, you see what Biden did? He, he you know, he, he well, talked, talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. When when Trump talks about how he's he would end the war in Ukraine in, in 24 hours, he always talks about how he used to warn Putin, don't do it. I yeah. said, don't do it. Or, and I, because he knew if he did it. What, so there is a sort of, um, not sort of, there's a, there's an, implication of military threat there right yeah which is also there in how he talks about how he'd end it you know he'd sort of uh, uh you know uh, uh he he'd sort of back up his his push for peace with with a threat of some sort but i have to say if i were to guess what he would do it would be to end the war on terms completely favorable to russia and that that would that would that would completely screw ukraine Okay, again, I'm just proposing these possibilities. The other is that um, uh, Biden finally, at some point in the spring, takes his turn against Israel, and Trump jumps on that. Or conversely, Biden doubles down on Israel, and Trump, because his line is that everything Biden does is wrong, says he's doing it wrong. Well, and because Trump doesn't actually have a foreign policy position himself. He is simply a reactionary. His foreign policy goals, even as president, were always reactionary. He happened to be surrounded by some people who, particularly with the case of Iran and the Abraham Accords, knew what they were doing. But this time around, I I don't imagine those people are coming back. So Trump has been complaining about Bibi. Right. I mean, what, he's been, okay. you know, he's been saying he does. He doesn't like that. BB congratulated right. Biden. He, you know, he he remembers these. He's got these chips on his shoulders that, that tend not to go away. So it doesn't. Of course, BB now will now is unpopular with him. 
supposedly is now unpopular with Biden, though this is all secondhand, and uh, is unpopular with the Israeli people. So, like, going anti-BB is a gimme in some sense, uh, maybe. We don't know. I'm just saying it's all kind of interesting. And then there's all this macroeconomic news that is all good for Biden. Dow's over 38,000. Inflation is coming down. I bought gas this weekend, three bucks. Three bucks isn't great, but it's down from five and it's going down to two. Uh, in you know, inflation is is coming under control. Mortgage rates are theoretically going to start dropping. So by the summer, the general economy could at least not stop being a you know a, a danger to Biden. Let's say maybe it's not going to be an electability issue for Biden. And Trump's going to have to talk it down, right? He's going to have to say, no, remember what happened to you, and you're just getting back to even, and uh, whatever whatever it is, however he'll talk about it. Although I don't know if he'll ever talk ma- macroeconomically like that. No, I was going to say, he'll talk about the border, which is still a huge mess for mm-hmm. Biden, and that's not going to get fixed in the next no, six months. Right. And that's, that's a winner for Trump. Like that's a clear winner for Trump as an issue. I mean, as 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 far as I am from where Trump is on immigration, I can you know ad- admit that um, you know he's he's going to win that that argument it's, uh, on the board. He would have won it even without this sort of. But the, the Biden administration is kind of um, just falling on its face on the border, also, which is. Uh, you know, it's not this is, has not become an argument over do we need comprehensive immigration reform? This has become look, there's obviously a crisis. OK, you're you know, you're your government, you're the government suing the state government of Texas over putting up uh, barbed wire and, you know, the accusations that uh, the, the Texas is barring federal agents from saving drowning migrants. I mean, the the arguments we're having now are not over policy in any way. They all start from the assumption that the border is a complete and total disaster, just an absolute mess of chaos. And policy is all going to come later. And, you know, if you're the incumbent and that's, you know, that's if everybody seems to agree that it's a total disaster and it happened on your watch, that's the sort of thing that weighs you down. And on top of that, he doesn't seem to realize how much stronger uh, Trump's argument is going to be than whatever argument he's going to make, you know, that he isn't responsible for it or whatever. He does. He doesn't seem to have the sense of urgency, I guess I'm saying, that voters are going to have you know, and getting, you know, the, the Democrats who well, run from Arizona you, are going to. Well, the anti-Trump they're, they're faction keeps pointing out he never built the wall. That That's the criticism against Trump, right? He promised a wall. There is no wall. And that's true. But it doesn't have the staying power of what people are actually seeing happen on the border every day and the, just, and the sheer numbers. It's not just that. Like, the, it's very clear that the Democratic, that the Biden people think that it is more dangerous for them to get tough on the wall than it is for them to be soft on the wall. They know perfectly well that these are their options. And right now their concern is turnout and turnout my young people. And, you know, they, they are too online and they're too everything. And who the hell knows? I have no idea whether they, they have reason, they're right to think that enough people in their coalition are completely dovish on immigration and would really be offended if he went the other way that they're better off you know in a, in a sort of lesser of two evils sense and going with the going the way they're going 
I find that very hard to believe that that is true because I mean that 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 perception is smart and they're really not dumb because this election is going to be one among independents and the idea of saying that, that there's a crime problem in the United States and there's an immigration problem in the United States and they're connected uh I really uh think that's a winner and I you know and I I, I assume if you've sat down with focus groups all over the country you know uh, Biden has like 200 million dollars in the bank he can spend it on focus groups till you know till they come out his ears that's largely what you're going to hear and I, he's got to move off he's got to he's got to have mayorkas can't keep talking about how yes the border is secure <laughs> you know biden himself friday said the border is not secure and he said the border hasn't been secure since before you know for years meaning obama's border wasn't secure either so you can't just say that and then they all have this. But but Mayorkas has been saying that for a long time, too. They have this way of talking about it as if they have nothing to do with it, as if someone else is in <laughs> it's charge. It's literally his job. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It is astonishing. OK, let me take a, another break and talk to you about HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. So you can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Each HelloFresh box is packed with farm fresh ingredients and everything arrives pre-portioned right to your doorstep for less hassle and less wasted food. And you can make saving time your breeziest New Year's resolution with quick, convenient recipes delivered right to you. Just choose your meals and select your delivery date. HelloFresh handles the meal planning and shopping all you have to do is open your weekly box and step-by-step step follow the recipes to get cooking. So go to HelloFresh.com slash commentary free. HelloFresh.com slash commentary free and use code commentary free for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash commentary free with code commentary free hello fresh america's number one meal kit and okay look let's talk about netsuite from oracle your business was humming but now you're falling behind teams buried in manual work you're taking forever to close the books getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth if this is you you should know these numbers thirty-seven thousand. 25 and 1. 37,000 number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. The number one cloud financial system. Streamlining, accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators, or KPIs, in one efficient system, with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, improve margins, everything you need to grow, all in one place. So right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com slash commentary. That's netsuite.com slash commentary to get your own KPI checklist netsuite.com slash commentary um 
what else what else do we have to talk about do we have anything else to talk about that's not politics that isn't anything we want to talk about it's going to be depressing that's my fear because like there's just no good news whatsoever i don't know um unless you love uh patrick mahomes in which case there is this thing again i don't really follow football patrick mahomes has been in the uh nfl for six years and he will have been in the uh in his division's championship game every single year that's like he's supernatural okay i've now said the one thing i'm going to say about football i was i i had brought this up to abe earlier i had tried to start the conversation the 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 pre-podcast conversation uh on joel Embiid's 70 points so yeah there's 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 some some fun stuff going on in sports. Yeah, I don't know who that is. Okay. That, that's what I said. I said that's I never exactly heard of what Abe said. I know. It's terrible. It's Math terrible. Math and sports, not our, it's not our terrible. land. <laughs> it is a terrible, terrible thing. Um. All right. Uh, so do we have anything else to talk about? You to, uh, okay. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. We'll talk about the Oscars for a minute. The Oscar nominations are out. And I don't know if they're that interesting because I think everybody is sort of reconciled to the fact that Oppenheimer is going to win Best Picture, but it's not clear whether. But Z- uh, Zone of it's. I'm interested in the fact that Zone of Interest is a nominee for Best Picture. Right, Zone of Interest is a movie about the people who live next door to Auschwitz. There's a big movement in art about about portraying things that are next. There's a book called The Boy in the Red Pajamas, which is about a kid right. and striped and, pajamas. Zone, Zone of Interest was a Martin Amos novel. It was a Martin Amos. It's yeah. apparently very different yeah. from the novel. Uh, and it is uh, contending for Best Picture, but will not win, but will likely win International Feature, a, which used to be Best Foreign Film, even though it's made in England. Uh, so I guess it's semi-international. It's, mo- it's in German, so it's therefore international. Anyway, here's the thing I want to talk to you guys about. Oppenheimer's going to win. It's very left-wing. Uh, and I still think it's a great movie. And we've uh, that we, of course, published a seminal piece. Uh, Oppenheimer is a communist about the thing that the movie elides, which is how radical his politics were uh, and how, in fact, he was almost certainly a member of the Communist Party, Stalin's Communist Party in the 1930s. Nonetheless, it's still a remarkable, remarkable film. Then there is Bradley Cooper's Maestro, also contending for Best Picture, which is about uh, a, a left-wing uh, figure of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, whose left-wingery is kind of left out of the movie uh, in favor of his um, his uh, gay acts outside of marriage. Um, the one thing I have... I, then there is American Fiction, which we talked about last week, which is a satire of white attitude which is a satire of white attitudes toward african-american culture that is very nervy and is it is interesting that somehow white critics and white powers that be in are so uh, flummoxed by how to talk and deal with john mcwhorter's column this week by the way in the new york times that's worth reading about the movie i would recommend that to folks it's great anyway but it's like they 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 don't know they they don't even have the vocabulary to say we can't make this movie a it makes fun of us and b it makes fun of black writers but nonetheless 
it's made it's nominated for best picture as is jeffrey wright in a really remarkable uh performance um but i don't know i don't actually think any of this matters uh and so i was just throwing stuff out there to see what i'll tell you what matters poor things people are going to be telling you to go see poor things Four Things the movie with Emma Stone. It's a Frankenstein story. It's like Frankenstein meets Beetlejuice meets Nightmare Before Christmas meets softcore porn on the way to hardcore porn. And it's disgusting. And I'm sorry. I hate to be like a Puritan, but it is really vile, um, morally, spiritually, intellectually. And uh, and that makes uh, me sad because Emma Stone was was uh, is great. And she she made one of the best teen movies that kind of flirted with, you know, the Scarlet Letter uh, back yeah, in the day. Easy a. Uh, yeah. yeah, easy A. So, yeah, well, that, I that like Emma me Stone sad. and she's kind of remarkable in this movie, technically speaking. But it's a it's a loathsome movie and I hope it wins nothing, though she may win. But if she loses Best Actress, she will lose it to Lily Gladstone, who plays this tormented Native American in Killers of the Flower Moon, another extraordinarily left-wing movie about the evils of America. So we're basically back to a lot of American evils, um, and uh, and that's uh, that's the Oscars. So, Christine Rosen, you're yes. up with today's commentary recommends. Yes, and and uh, two caveats. Well, actually, one disclosure: it's not. Japanese dystopian fiction, so you don't have to run this off and find your obscure novel. Um, so even though I'm actually for Japanese dystopian fiction, <laughs> there'll be more. And now be you're more. going in an entirely other direction. <laughs> this is a totally different direction. You're the actually, J.D. This... Vance of the of this. There you're we like, go. No, no, no. Or okay. <laughs> well, this this actually I discovered thanks to my sons. And the other caveat I would give is that I mean they're almost adults, so so it, the viewing of it is fine for them. But this really isn't a show for children. There's a fair amount of violence and drug stuff, and but it's a wonderful show uh, on Netflix, a limited series that's called Boy Swallows Universe, and it's based on a novel. It's uh, it's this is an Australian show. It's set in Brisbane. And it has a wonderful cast, uh, most notably the uh, it, it's told through the eyes of a young boy and you sort of follow him through time as he grows up. But the actor who plays the young boy, um, the young boy's name, uh, it's his name is Felix Cameron and he's amazing. But it's a story of uh, this this young boy um, who lives with his uh his brother, who is kind of intermittently mute, he just doesn't like to speak his his mother, who is a drug addict and a um stepfather who's just uh, no amount of trouble for this family. And it's the story of how this boy tries to help his family survive and help get them out of the clutches of a pretty evil drug lord. It's it's there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of um, coming of age stuff. Actually, the relationship between this boy and his older brother is beautiful. And and the relationships that develop with with sort of neighbors and people in, in this family's uh, orbit. Um, but it is the story of how a young boy becomes a man. And it's kind of fascinating. I mean, you have to I love Australian stuff. So like if you love Australian TV and movies, Abe, you'll love this one. Um, it's just really done well. So there's a there's enough drama. There's enough crime stuff. Um, but there's also just heart in, in how they talk tell the story of this family. Uh, 
everybody's flawed. Everybody's got issues. Everybody at some point tries to find a way to care for each other and get them through each crisis as it, as it unfolds. And I, I'm being deliberately vague because there are a lot of plot points that'll give away the ending. I don't want to do that. I think it's seven or eight episodes. It's not, it's just this limited series based on a book. And it's really wonderful. I just, I found it uh, delightful. It is quite violent at times. So if you don't like uh, violence and you don't like drug stuff, this is not the show for you. But um, Boy Swallows Universe, I, I recommend it. It's on Netflix. I'm glad that you that it's good because it was already on my radar. It's on my oh, list to, to watch. Yeah, yeah but They'll I like it, it. I think people will remember that Abe very, very enthusiastic about an Australian crime show last year called mm-hmm. uh, Mr. In Mr. Between. Mr. Yeah. In Between. Yeah, which was great. Right, yes. yeah. And uh, I uh, this gives me a chance out of nowhere to recommend one of my favorite documentaries, which is entirely comic called Not Quite Hollywood. Uh, which is about uh, the Ozploitation. The Australian film and television world was essentially created in the late 60s, early 70s by an export market of of horror movies and violent exploitation. Um, and, and from that emerged <clears throat> the things that made Australia a major center of pop culture, uh, like Mad Max, um, and uh, Mad Max was the sort of the the end result of this period, and not quite Hollywood is the documentary that lays out what was going on there, and it is one of the funniest movies ever made. Um, also very violent because it's about violent movies that were made and. They show the scenes. Australia has given us some amazing actors over the past several decades. And we should be the British actors we get, everybody praises, but we we really should appreciate the range of of the. Yeah, let's talk about Russell Crowe, Heath Ledger, Blanchett, Margot Robbie, Kate Blanchett, uh, Rachel Griffiths, uh, Guy Pierce. I'm trying to think. I mean, there there's a there's a raft of others. Sam Henry. Neil, Hugh Jackman, Sam Neil, yes, Sam Hugh, Jackman is Hugh Jackman. Hugh oh. Jackman, of course, Hugh Jackman. Very important. Very important. <laughs> Abe, Abe is shrugging. <laughs> yeah. Nicole Kidman. That's a conversation we'll have offline, Abe. <laughs> Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman. Yeah. Naomi Watts. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's a, a lot of them. Yeah, they're yeah. they're wonderful. I should add, by the way, that this the, the other reason I I loved this this particular uh, Netflix series. Not just because it was set in Brisbane, but it's Brisbane in the 80s. And a lot of the men are seriously rocking excellent mullets. Like it's very 80s. It has a really nice 80s feel. So as a child of the 80s, I did appreciate that. Okay. I do want to say also that um, in the Oscar nominations, Margot Robbie was snubbed, did not get an Oscar nomination for her titular performance in Barbie, which uh, you may like Barbie, you may not like Barbie, you may be annoyed by Barbie, whatever, um, was an absolutely extraordinary piece of work as she moved, not entirely like a human being. She was moving like a doll through much, very subtly. Um, and, uh, this is something that Emma Stone, by the way, also does in poor things. Everyone's like, Oh, Emma Stone. She's so great. Oh, look, technically what an amazing performance. Margot Robbie's was also amazing. She did not get nominated though. She's nominated for producing it and uh that's a that's a that's a, a shonda and uh they should although ryan gosling did get nominated for his portrayal <laughs> of ken so ken ken that's got a nomination and not Look, i'm looking forward ryan to the takes looking everybody, forward to the takes everybody loves ryan gosling this is this is true and they should it's, it's amazing. all right 
we'll be back tomorrow. For Abe, Christine, Seth, and the absent Madam John Pop keep the candle burning.